Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Fritio, Chief Business Officer and Co-Founder of Antler, a startup generator and early stage venture capital firm. Fritjof works with a global team dedicated to developing the next generation of world-changing technology companies. He oversees external activities across the firm globally and serves as a member on its investment committees. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Fritjof, welcome to the show. It's super nice to have you here at the European VC. How are you today? Doing great, David. And uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's our pleasure for sure. Listen, I think we cannot start this interview without deep diving straight into, you know, the origin story of Antler, you know, but obviously connected to the origin story is also your story, right? So please shed, us, shed some light on how this all came to be in the early days. Yeah, no, definitely. I, um, I'm from Norway and... Um, have a background uh, working in different uh, early stage startups in the Nordic region, uh, consulting in, uh, in McKinsey, so working quite a lot across Europe, uh, but also studying in, in both the UK and the US. So quite an international background um, after uh, my childhood and, and early years in, in Norway. And it's quite a lot of similarities with the other co-founders of Antler, having had quite a lot of international exposure early on. And I think that led us together and made us all quite excited about starting a firm that is really all about enabling extremely talented people to start companies in the best way possible, regardless of their starting point. Some will come with great networks and a lot of access to capital. Others will be from more remote places and maybe lack uh, capital network ideas, but they are extremely driven and talented. So it's a bit of the origin of, uh, of both myself and, and a number of the others. And I will say that, especially my years at um, Harvard Business School, formed a lot of the ambition to create something truly impactful. I think if it's one thing that uh, uh, you, know, you as entrepreneurs are really good at, it's to think very big and uh, aim really high. And I think that's a very good inspiration for a lot of entrepreneurs elsewhere that uh, if you're going to spend the next 10, 15, 20, maybe more years working on something, you, you might as well aim really high and try to make a big impact. If I translate that into how do we get started and what were we looking to achieve, it really came down to a few things. But ultimately, we wanted to, on the one hand, get access to great opportunities to, to make good investments. We, we thought it's interesting to invest in startups. It can be a great business model if you get access to, to great entrepreneurs. But on the other hand, growing up and having worked in different uh, professions, we saw a bigger problem perhaps which was around how can we lower the barrier for great people to get started on their companies. Time and time again, we met people who either didn't have the time or they had no good co-founders or they just didn't have the financial situation to dedicate full time on starting a company. And we thought that was a shame because despite all the talk about entrepreneurship and we read about, especially nowadays, entrepreneurs all the time in every single type of media, not just uh, the more traditional startup media, the world needs more entrepreneurs and there's no shortage of problems needing to be solved. And I think if you look back in history, the real groundbreaking innovation has come from entrepreneurs, not from governments or not from sort of overly structured big programs. 
And that's why I think it's so important. And hopefully we can play a bit of a role in that to just encourage more talented people to be entrepreneurs and lower the threshold for them to get started and just sort of try to 10x, if not 100x, the number of talented entrepreneurs who want to create something really impactful. I have to ask, and this, is, this question comes a bit from a, a place of ignorance. Um, when you guys started out, were there any kind of other organizations doing some, anything similar to what Antler became? You know, like today, there's, a, there's, there's quite a few players that have this very kind of interesting play in the early stages that are somewhat comparable to you guys. Back in the day, I actually don't know. Were, were there any, any, anyone that you guys were looking at as a benchmark that you took some inspiration from? Or was it really just kind of you grew into being this, this machine by a mix of serendipity, but also following the opportunity? I think for sure we drew inspiration from a lot of places. And depending on what part of the model uh, that you look at, there's different tiers, I will say, and different learnings to be, to be drawn. I think lots of organizations are really good at identifying talent and attracting talent. Lots of organizations are good at making investments. Lots of organizations are good at creating scalable um, support for uh, you know, a quite decentralized organization like ours who are in 25 cities across six continents now. So we pulled on learnings from different companies and different players. I think in terms of backing early stage entrepreneurs and, and trying to back talent, there's lots of regional and, and local um, initiatives, I guess, that would call, fall within the same category. I think what's interesting with what we have created is that it's really global and, and at a very big scale. So it opens up a lot of opportunities for us to not just provide good local or regional support, but to really pull on what's now a truly global footprint to create as much value and support as possible to founders from an early stage. So that's really where we are now, you know, five years into this journey that we have the scale, we have back now more than 650 portfolio companies across uh, all corners of the world, but it's really an exciting time in our, our journey because we now have the scale and starting to get a strong brand name to be able to create more value than we would have been able to if we were just working on this in Singapore or just working on this in, in London or Oslo, for example. I'm curious if you could uh, dive a bit into Antler thinking around how quickly you wanted to scale and what structure you wanted to do it with, because, you know, there's many different ways to, to scale a VC firm. You've scaled rapidly. Uh, so that's the one thing that's typically not what you see with VC firms. Um, if you think of Sequoia today, who, who's huge, they didn't move quick at all in the beginning, right? Um, so I'd love to hear, you know, the mindset that you came with and, and how you thought about that rapid expansion. Um, it's not something we typically see in VCs. Yeah, no, it's definitely a, a new take, I will say, this uh, speed and scale. But it was also quite deliberate when starting out because this scale, even though it takes a lot of work to establish it and then obviously maintain it and pull value from it, it does provide more opportunities to be valuable to entrepreneurs. And I think that that is a really important thing for venture investors and investors in general, that you want to be value-adding. I guess at some point you can always win a deal if you're providing a you know super um, increased valuation or you know paying a big premium, but I don't think that's necessarily the most scalable way of, of building an investment strategy. What if you can create true value and become more accessible and get access to to great talent and ultimately great ideas that they build? So it was a big part of our strategy to scale fast to be able to be more competitive and be more favorable among founders. 
the speed was also quite deliberate because by rapidly expanding, we attracted more talented people. And for every partner who've joined the firm, I think they brought in more learnings, they brought in more networks, they brought in more new ideas. We've also gotten more access to great potential investors, both directly in the portfolio companies and, and into the Antler investment vehicles. We are building a stronger brand because people are seeing Antler appear in, in more events, in more ecosystems, uh, in, in more people's uh, social media feeds. So you get into this virtuous cycle where things just spin faster. And the alternative, especially when you're dealing with pre-seed investing, is that it takes time and it will take a long time for a pre-seed company to grow into being in the growth stage and, and you know, to, to be a really successful one. So the alternative of waiting for a full fund lifetime to play out will just take very long. And I think that you will not keep on building on that momentum that you already have. So it does take a lot of effort, but if you structure it the right way, I think that you get to meaningful scale faster. And we've also been very focused on pulling out learnings for every time we've been adding a new location. And what I mean by that is we run these residency programs where founders come in typically with very early ideas, looking for co-founders and looking for time and an ecosystem to work on refining their ideas. For every one of these cycles, which typically takes a place between uh, four to six months, we do a retrospective analysis of what worked, what was the feedback from the founders, what was helpful that we brought to them, what was not helpful, and we share that across locations. And now with 25 locations, you could argue that we're learning 25 times as fast as if we were just in one location. So the speed of learning on every single part of our setup is just much more efficient. You need to be quite structured to make that uh, learning flow across such a big and decentralized team. But if you're making that work, which I think we are, then it's uh, a very efficient way of growing and learning together. Uh, and and that, that almost leads me into my next question, which is, <laughs> um, and, and I might be saying this in a bit of a provocative manner, and to some extent, it's also meant as such, <laughs> um, because I have thought that when looking at the Antler GP, GP profiles that I see, there's almost like uh, an Antler GP talent thesis. Uh, around people coming from big consulting consulting houses, I'd love to ask you: Is this by design, or is it more okay? That's our network, so that's why we serendipitously ended up pretty much hiring from McKinsey, <laughs> or or uh, how does that work out? So I will maybe slightly disagree because uh, a lot of the early people who joined uh, definitely are coming from some of the uh, consulting houses, uh, including McKinsey, of course, a big portion of the founder team, and I think it is because we knew each other, right, and we. Um, had spent time together and really saw that we can come together and create something. That's one portion of uh, our backgrounds and, and many uh, have gone on to, to build great companies uh, either before or after. If you look at what's now more than 50 partners across um, the Antler ecosystem, I will say that the typical profiles are people who've built or been early employees in successful startups in that region. So what we're really looking for when we are getting a new partner on board in a new location is really that they have been an operational entrepreneur or in a very early role in a fast-growing startup in that ecosystem. And that's important because they know what it takes. They can relate to founders in, in a good way. They also have networks in that region who can hopefully come in and help the uh, startups. And that element of their profile is very important to us 
I will say, compared to a later stage VC or a more traditional fund setup, were probably weighing quite a lot more on operational uh, experience in their previous roles and being able to create good operational structure because we're dealing with so many people in so many companies. That is weighed yeah, much more um, than uh, perhaps in more traditional uh, investment setups. When you were talking about scale fit off in the beginning, just like three minutes before or so, <laughs> you, you used a couple of interesting words. You, you use the word process, you use the word structure. You know, and I think it's incredibly insightful for our listeners, them being, you know, many of them being emerging VPs, understanding, okay, I, I think I think it will be very unlikely that any of them do not know of Antler. <laughs> so I think we can skip that that bit of, you know, what is Antler focusing on and so on and so forth. I think we've, we've done that already enough. But it's more about understanding, okay, how is it structured? Because that might have interesting learnings for our, for our listeners, whether that's from the funds, the organization, whatever you think is most insightful, but I'd love to, to give you the time to deep dive a bit into it. Yeah, and do and do do add in, you know, the deliberations behind it. Why did you think that this would be the best model? Why did you not go for another one? You know, the more detailed, the better. Yeah, I think that the way we've structured it is really built around how can we do the things locally that make sense to do locally, and then try to standardize or, or centralize in some way the things that we don't need to do in every location. And even if you are having a much smaller or you know less global setup, I, I think there are many ways you can think along the same lines that we have been thinking. So you can think of Antler as several different regions doing the same type of activity, which is identifying and uh, attracting and supporting entrepreneurs, being there then as this day zero investor backing them from the very beginning, and then following on as, as the companies uh, progress and get more traction. Behind the scenes, there's a lot of things that need to be provided or to be performed by that team. They uh, need ideally a good technology platform so that they can in a scalable way give feedback to teams, invite them to events, connect them to each other, uh, just run everything more efficiently. And that is one typical area where obviously we don't want a technology and product team in 25 locations building 25 different uh, solutions. And um, that's a good example where we have uh, brought in quite a lot of people who are now optimizing the balance between what do we build in-house and what do we connect from uh, external solutions. And most importantly, how do we optimize how this makes everyday life easier for the people operationally running each location? So that's on capital. Another element is around things like um, people and culture. So how do we create the same culture? How do we have the same values? How do we create good learning and development opportunities for people, even provide for you know, colleagues who are looking to do something different or something happens in their personal life, so they need to relocate to a different region. Maybe there are roles there that we can provide. That is an aspect where we make the people flow much more efficient by having a central people and culture function. But it's also tremendously important to create the same basis and, and to reiterate and build a company based on our values and our principles. It's very difficult if you don't have that central or, or sort of global layer to build an organization that talks the same talk and has the same values and, and builds a team in, in, in more or less the same way. So people and culture is an important part of creating kind of one out there across very different markets and very different uh, cultures. Then there's an element around the networks. So the advisors we have in one location, we can definitely 
utilize them and their expertise in different locations. So if you are an expert on the shipping industry in Oslo, there's no reason why, as long as you're willing to, that we can't connect you to a shipping company in Singapore that we are backing. Similarly, if you are a later stage investor in uh, fintech based out of London, maybe you have a global mandate, you can definitely then look at fintech startups in India or in Singapore or in the US. That is also where having a support team sitting globally or centrally comes into play because this team can really optimize how do we share that network? How do we use it in the best way? We don't want to kind of drown anyone with 100 emails a day and, and uh, not be value adding that way. And all of this requires thinking because when you make it work, it's an incredible machinery and it's really hard to replicate or have the time to build out if you're busy doing the day-to-day -day execution in, in one of the locations. I think the list goes on in terms of marketing is another example. We can work as one team and tell one story globally rather than telling a smaller story individually in each smaller market. Uh, talent identification or scouting, as we call it internally, is also a big part of something where we can learn by just having people sitting centrally and trying to pick up how we got to really exceptional founder talent in one location. How could we take those activities and copy paste them in other locations? You could potentially do that without the central unit, but it just doesn't become the main objective of someone in one location to pass on those learnings. People are very willing to, and it's a big part of our culture to share learnings. But if the threshold is too big to do that, it falls, uh, it falls through and it doesn't really happen. So a lot of uh, these functions and these examples I provided is around having dedicated people making sure that we share and implement the best practices across locations. And in some cases, people just need to make sure that we are pulling on the best people from across after and not relying on that proactively happening in, in one location. On the, on the marketing communications topic that you, that you brought up, which reading from your LinkedIn, it's something that you spend some, some time thinking about these days. Uh, I actually have a question for you, which is, you know, if, if, I, if I bring what you're saying down to our world at the European VC, right, we're now five people, we're trying to get a six people. And obviously, one of my concerns, right, on the investment side, particularly when we're doing our LP investing is, is, is quality control, ensuring quality, but also reputation. Because I, I always say internally, I'm always saying, you know, we see such a small world, we can't burn bridges, we can't say no's, but we need to do them very quickly and very well said, right? And then obviously, if I, if I now take this and I extrapolate to a global level, I think some of the best investors out there in terms of returns are, are dickheads and have terrible reputations, right? Uh, some are super nice people. And so my view is very much there isn't a right approach. There are different approaches. But then how do you think at Anthra, right, when you're onboarding a new GP for a new location? So as an example, I'm going to name him because I'm comfortable enough with him to do it. Sergio in Portugal, right? Maybe he's a dickhead with his founder. That maybe he's, you know, you're just getting a, a shitty reputation in, in Portugal that then kind of goes into Spain and it's kind of really not good for your brand. So how do you think about these two things on a global scale when, when picking these, these, these new partners and, and launching new locations? Reputation and uh, quality control, of course, of the investment you're making. And, and a disclaimer for everyone, searcher is not a dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was going to say it was a... Uh... Uh, it was um, a good, good, good correction, Andreas. But uh, no, Sergio. Is great. <laughs> uh, and if he's out there listening, then uh, you know, even though know, even though I do enjoy Sergio, so in that sense, who knows? Well. <laughs> but uh, jokes aside, I uh, I um, uh, can sort of break it down into two pieces. So 
when you're dealing with people in a very hands-on manner like we are, I think it's very important to be founder-friendly and, and you know, founder-first. I think there's so many different ways someone can start a company and the fact that they choose to to come to Antler and work with Antler, it's, it's a big uh, responsibility we have to then be friendly with them. Now, friendly doesn't mean to say yes to everything or never push back or never give harsh feedback. So there is a balance there, but um, I think people, EG Sergio, who are great with people can do that in an efficient way. And uh, if we see that that is not happening, I think it is a big responsibility for us uh, to call that out and either change that behavior or, or make changes in the team because being global, it's, brings with it a lot of great opportunities but you also are working in a lot of different ecosystems with a lot of different touch points and it's really important that everyone who represents antler is representing antler in, in a professional way and being founder friendly and putting founders first is really the top uh, principle we have internally if i link I remember that to when, for now i was just about to say i remember when you uh, opened up your office in copenhagen I think I actually saw the job posting for a partner position. Um, so, you know, that actually surprised me a bit in the sense that most VC hires are being done without anyone posting anything, at least for, for the partner level. So, so I'd love to hear your thinking around that. Is it, is it a CSR thing <laughs> or is it, uh, is it because you actually do, do believe that you cannot know everyone who would be relevant in an ecosystem? Yeah, if, if I take that, Part I think it's quite straightforward. We, in vast in the vast majority of cases, we have brought in people we have gotten warm intros to or known from our different networks. But I think that not posting it externally, you just lose out on potential people you don't know, and we don't know everyone yeah. in Denmark, and we don't know everyone in the Nordics. So it's a it's a nice add-on. I think being transparent and open on uh, every role you're you're looking to recruit uh, never hurts. Uh, but at the same time, I see where you're coming from because the vast majority, it is people you know or someone you know who interests you. It uh, it does, you know, typically increase the average quality of an applicant, but it doesn't then mean that there's no good applicants coming from uh, no. from the general uh, applications on our website. Yeah, yeah. Now I just thought it was interesting uh, to touch on. Um, and I, 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 I I'd be curious to hear what do you look for in a GP when you launch a new location. Um, Maybe let's start. Let's start with with when you choose to open up a new location. Is that GP driven? So you meet someone who's absolutely crazy good in real, and then you you see that okay, there's a good match here. Let's open up a location in real. Or do you say strategically on the map we're missing real, so we'll 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 find a team in real. Tell us how you think about that, and then after it's, let's let's go a bit into how do you then weigh the in quotation marks <laughs> applicants uh, for that location. Sure, have a list of very exciting ecosystems and those can be in emerging markets they can be in more established ecosystems and the good thing with being in 2022 is there's a lot of places that are you know just getting started when it comes to nurturing and creating startups i think one of my favorite stats is that in 2020 sorry 2010 there was 22 cities with a unicorn in july 2021 there was 170 unicorns that number is probably bigger now meaning that you're close to 200 cities with one or more unicorn. And that's obviously 200 cities from vastly different ecosystems. So we're bullish on a lot of different uh, markets. And for the ones that are in that, let's call it the long list, we are 
quite opportunistically looking at different profiles, getting to know different ecosystems. And we spend a lot of time figuring out who's the best first partner that we can get on board. Because once we have that person, it's a lot easier to build the rest of the team. We can start to get really uh, the ball rolling. And that dialogue or that search can take anywhere from three months to well over a year. We're not going to reduce the quality metric uh, just to get going in the location. We're not rushing to open the new places, but we are putting a lot of effort into evaluating people. And in some places, we've talked to hundreds of profiles, really deep. It takes a lot of time, but it's so critical to get that right. And uh, in other places, we've been more fortunate and, and found people earlier. But uh, there's a lot of you know, uh, variation in how that uh, timeline um, is developing. And what we look at, just yeah. to address that part, Andrea, what we look at is, Again, the operational excellence, ideally, there is a strong interest and uh, experience on the investment side as well. In some cases, that's coming from another VC. In other cases, it's coming from more angel investing in that space. And the uh, third one is really the culture. I mean, you need to get along well with the team. We typically spend time on the ground, both when assessing them, at least in the final stages. And then senior members of our team typically try to spend a lot of the first few weeks or months in that location as well to help with the onboarding. And that's also a good way to just build the right culture. Yeah. I was about to ask you to um, kind of uh, dive into the process of, of you know, vetting a candidate because, you know, just we, we have so many listeners that are uh, thinking of building a VC firm, but they don't want to do it themselves or uh, whatever. Um, and, and also who are hiring for principal or senior roles. Um, and there, I think that you guys probably the ones with, both the, one of the best playbooks for doing that for founders. And I imagine that you've also uh, uh, systematized it quite a bit for, uh, for, for uh, Antler Global on GP level. So if I understood correctly, you wanted me to go a bit more into how we assess the... Um, yeah, exactly. What does, that look, what does that process look like? Sure. So it is ultimately a series of conversations. Some of them are more case study-like. So if you were starting this region, what would your 100-day plan be? What would you do? Because it's important for us to know that they have a clear vision for what they want to do. We can give playbooks for a lot of the elements, but ultimately you are starting that location and a lot of our belief in that location hinges on you and what you think. So a lot of the conversations evolve around that. Some of the conversations evolve around obviously what you did in the past. I think like any role, we're, we're looking at um, uh, proof of operational excellence. Personally, I look I try to think about this uh, airport test or whatever it's called. Uh, you know, is it someone you could spend uh, six or eight hours waiting on the flight with without uh, going crazy? And it matters because whether it's on Zoom or whether it's in person, you will be spending a lot of time with these people and uh, it needs to be fun. You need to have some aligned interests and obviously the same, uh, the same uh, values. So I will say that it's three categories of conversations, really. Some of them more structured around the plan. The other element more around your background, that includes obviously a lot of references, especially as you're going towards the end of the, of the assessment pipeline, references from other people in the ecosystem, both the ones provided by the candidate, but also from our own network. Those weigh heavily. It's important that we, we hear good things about the candidates. And the third one is more maybe relating to my airport example, just about the culture. And one thing I didn't mention earlier is that we not only try to travel there to be in the location with the person towards the end of the assessment, but we also invite them to one or more of our offices to have them experience Antler. And I think that is an important point, which probably is very applicable to anyone hiring, which is 
with the best candidates, you're obviously assessing, but you're definitely selling as well. So it's a <laughs> balance to find. And the best people are probably just at that edge where you really want them and they really want you. And, you know, some people yeah. you probably really want and they don't want you if you're not good at selling them what they can really get out of being part of, of your organization. That's a big piece I think is important to balance throughout, not just towards the end of the conversation, but you want to sell to them what they can get from you. And ultimately, any hire, right, is an exchange of time. and uh, there's so much cool things people can do with their time. So if they choose to spend it with you, then they better have a good reason. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just have one final question on this point, which is, um, it, and it comes from, from today, a good friend of the UVC, Stefano Bernardi, launched his new fund called Unruly Capital. And what he, or what really I loved about that, fund launch was he had a super in-depth memo on you know how he thinks about venture and and what brought him to where he is today and all that kind of stuff how big are you on thesis driven gps versus gps that that you know or more like i'm in this for the investing part and i don't have as such a strong thesis on whatever vertical or whatever place in life in the world that i should fit or that kind of thing how do you think about that i think given our focus on the early stages and the sort of day zero investing. By default, our model is very people-driven, I would say. So it's a thesis that if we can identify and get to know and get excited about great, talented entrepreneurs, we will want to back them. When we invest at this very early stage, we know that the vast majority of these companies that we invest in will pivot significantly in the future. It doesn't mean that we're discounting the ID when we are making the investment, but who the people behind the ID are and what they stand for and what they want to do in the future weighs very heavily. So as an organization, we're very people-driven in our initial investment. As we do the follow-on rounds in later stages, it becomes much um, more data-driven. We see how they progress, wh wh what they're doing and how the market is receiving their product. But that's a very different um, type of investment decision from the first one, which is uh, really what makes us quite distinct in the market. At the same time, the GPs in the different markets in varying degrees have their own thesis on what they believe should be built, what they um, are excited about. But I still think that as an organization, we like to say that you know, rather than trying to be the best at predicting the future, let's try to be the best at identifying people who can shape the future. And an element of that is Unless I know everything or unless I'm the best potential entrepreneur in the world, how do I know that my thesis is the right one? It might be people that think about things totally differently who will then fall outside of my area where I'm looking because they're just thinking about it or coming at it from a completely different angle. If I identify that person and I say, wow, he's so smart, I want to back him, then I can be part of that journey. If I'm limiting myself to one thesis, especially at the early stages, I risk losing out on people who are just smarter or think about the different or think about the industry in a very different way. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Uh, while, it, while you were talking, I just realized, fuck, uh, uh, Stefano's fund is not unruly capital, but unruly ventures. Uh, <laughs> so I just have to make that correction um, to, 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 to do shout out to a bro for, for renaming his fund. I, I tend to do that kind of thing. <laughs> so um, before we can go to the quick fire round uh, that I know that David can't wait for, um, I have to ask you 
now that we're with one of the co-founders of Answer, where the he where the hell did the name come from? Why Answer? Why why not something else? There's a few different reasons for the name. Um, the biggest reason is that antlers are the fastest growing tissue on animals with antlers. They grow out and when they fall off, new ones grow out again. And it resembles quite nicely our residency programs where companies grow out in all kinds of directions. And when they're growing out of our offices, we get new exciting entrepreneurs to come in and build new companies with us. The other element is that it's quite easy to pronounce and spell. And for someone with a name <laughs> online, I've, I've learned the hard way that that's important to think about uh, when starting a new company in uh, in um, uh, 2022 or you know in, in a modern yeah. days. And the last thing uh, is that uh, I think the antlers in general have a little bit of a Nordic link as well. We mentioned that some of our co-founders were from Norway and uh, one of our co-founders is from Finland. And uh, so... A lot of reindeer and I guess a lot of different animals with antlers. So it's a nice, uh, nice link to, to there, even though we're, we're obviously now all over the world. So that's, uh, that's the reasons for, for the name. I love that. And that was a good answer. And it, and it had nothing to do with uh, the fact that it starts with A? It didn't hurt. To be honest, I think that was more important <laughs> than before. Uh, I, I think I read somewhere that Amazon, for example, was very focused on uh, starting with an A. And, and that was probably more important in the... 90s when a lot of the lists just you know ran yeah. alphabetically. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, I'd rather start with A than Z. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I wouldn't say it was the key driver. But uh, you know, your name is Andreas, so you you've always had it easy. <laughs> I've always been the first one to be called out. It's definitely not because I was the loudest, just because I started with A. <laughs> On that note, Fritjof, we're going to uh, shift into the quickfire round. Quickfire round is how we end every single one of our episodes, 120-something, maybe 130 so far. So that's exciting. And it goes uh, with quick answer questions, 30 to 60 uh, seconds to answer each one. Are you ready? Yes. Awesome. First question is, what areas, technologies, or sectors excite you the most, but that you find people around you not getting that excited about? I think I will say food tech. Um, there's a lot of developments happening in uh, plant-based nutrition, in vertical farming, smaller countries or regions trying to be independent uh, in their food supply. We see also from uh, the sustainability perspective how much uh, harm you know some of the traditional food production is having on the world. So I think it will be a growing market. And I also think that we're just seeing the very beginning of some of these uh, you know, meatless options, as an example, or different substitutes for eggs or chicken, etc. So I think that that will be a huge space. And it's probably a big wave coming of shifting behaviors. But when that comes, obviously, food is just a massive market. And uh, we're seeing, for example, here in Singapore, that there's quite a lot of startups in that space uh, uh, entering the market. So I think uh, it's probably a bit overlooked by at least a lot of people that I talk to. We definitely agree. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, second question of the quick fire round. What's the, what would be your top tips for emerging VCs who are now fundraising? I will say two things. One is think about how you are differentiated. Maybe it's your network, maybe it's your model, maybe it's just uh, what you've done in the past. But really try to make that clear because a lot of the people you talk to have talked to a lot of other VCs. And even if you don't feel that you are similar the default reaction will probably be that you are unless you prove them otherwise. The second thing will be whenever you talk to a potential investor 
always try to end with, uh, is there anyone else that I can uh, talk to from your network who would find this interesting? Because even if someone says no or it's outside of their mandate, it doesn't mean that they can't be helpful to you. And it's just a lost opportunity to forget to ask that question. So that's a very good, uh, easy tip, right? I like that one. That last one. Third and final question. What is the most counterintuitive learning you've had since you've uh, founded Antler? It's probably a learning from the industry in general that in many cases you see that the people who take the most risk and really push the limit, sometimes they end up being the most successful. And I'm not saying that's a great thing because uh, you know sometimes it goes wrong and, and you see that uh, people get into trouble. But it's... Uh, Still, the answer that comes to mind that, uh, you know, growing nicely in a steady, safe way, it doesn't always get you there as a startup. And uh, I think for a lot of talented people who are looking to build companies, they come from safer environments and they are building brick by brick and expecting that that's uh, what's going to get them there. I'm not recommending to go and completely throw out the rule book and, and go completely crazy, but it is worth realizing that probably some of your competitors are are thinking in a very different way. And at least adapting elements of that or studying some of the companies in your area that have really grown fast to understand what uh, they did, I think is uh, is important. And um, maybe I'll add one more there, which is slightly different, but when starting out and also when coaching a lot of these portfolio companies that we have, I was surprised by how many people are very open to talk about why they failed or why they didn't get to the success they were hoping for with somewhat similar ideas. So. I think it's easy to think that if I'm building a fintech company in you know the B2C space and I call someone who tried to build there and they didn't succeed, that they will be upset or it will be very painful for them to talk or they will be angry or protective. And usually that's not the case. People love to share, love to maybe even get involved in your venture. So reaching out to people who perhaps didn't quite pull it off, it's not rude. It's not uh, a waste of time, I think. And people are typically more willing to talk than you might expect. Ah, that's cool. Richard, before I can wrap it up, I have to ask a question that we didn't ask during, and it's good that I ask it this late because we might have to delete it. <laughs> but I would love to ask you, Richard, why the hell is Antler run out of Singapore? Because you are a bunch of Nordic people primarily. <laughs> so, so why Singapore? So we were starting out in Singapore, as you say, and the initial team are a lot of people coming from the Nordic region. Since then, though, we have expanded to other places and a lot of the key roles across the company are decentralized. Our head of technology is in the US, our CFO is in Norway, our uh, lead partner on raising capital is in, uh, is in London. So even though a fair portion of the co-founder team um, is based out of Singapore, it's really a decentralized organization in how we work. Now, how we ended up starting in this region is because... Uh, some of our team was already based here. Magnus, our CEO, for example, had uh, built a company in the region before, was based in Singapore. And we had the debate on whether to start in the Nordics, where we had good networks and where we had the good presence, or if we should start in Singapore, where we also had a quite good um, network and presence. And we decided on starting out in Singapore. And it's a very fascinating region. It's uh, just an incredible, young, fast-moving population across uh, all of these countries that falls within this region. And um, 
that's really why we decided to take a bet on it. We saw a lot of rapidly moving developments in, in the region. And I think a good example of that is when I moved here late 2017, it was, I believe, seven unicorns in the region. Now it's 52 and it's just exploding. And so many people have been part of some of the initial success stories and they're now turning to build companies on their own. And uh, there's lots of great things to say about the Nordics as well, but it's, uh, it's a different type of growth journey and a different uh, starting point. That's super interesting. I'm happy you asked that question. Fridjof, thanks so much for joining us. This was a blast. Thanks for having me, Andreas and David, and uh, keep it up. Always uh, great to listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc.